You've got work friends, you've got best friends, and now you've got ghoul friends. Hello, and welcome to episode three of Spooky Stories with Celeste. I'm Celeste. <laughs> and I'm Caitlin. <laughs> I always feel weird doing that intro. This <laughs> is a little bit different. With Celeste, I'm Celeste. <laughs> How's it going? It's good. Yeah. It's been another rainy day, but it's, it's been a very rainy weekend. Yeah. It's given spooky vibes. We were, you know, we're old when we're like, yeah, we needed this rain. <laughs> no, you know you're old when it rained and you're like, my back hurts. <laughs> Damn it. <laughs> we have finally become the old people that get affected by the weather. The weather, yep. Okay. <sighs> Can't avoid it, I guess. Nope. All right. Um, let's see. Anything else? Anything you want to talk about before we get into the story? I don't think so. All right. So today's story, and this was ominous when I came across the title, was called The Haunted Doll's House Mm-mm. because we don't like haunted dolls. No. <laughs> Not one bit. We've done a fair number of episodes on them. Don't like them. And if you listen to earlier episodes, you know my beef with my demonic American Girl doll. Yeah. Growing mm-hmm. up, I'm not a, not a huge fan. Mm-mm. But I do not know what this one is about, so we're, we're all going to find out together. It sounds good. All right. And just as a fun fact, too, uh, this is written by M.R. James. And if you listen to, I believe it's the Halloween short stories episode, he actually, that author wrote the story that you read, number 13, oh. about the hotel rooms. Yeah. Um, same guy. Interesting. So well, he's pretty good then. Well, he is. Yeah, he is. Uh, and it looks like just to give you a little uh, background, he was born in 1862 and he died in 1936. So, hmm. all, right. all right. Well, without further ado, I give you the haunted doll's house. I suppose you get stuff of that kind through your hands pretty often," said Mr. Dillett as he pointed with his stick to an object which shall be described when the time comes. And when he said it, he lied in his throat, and he knew that he lied. Not once in twenty years, perhaps once in a lifetime, could Mr. Chittenden, skilled as he was in ferreting out the forgotten treasures of half a dozen counties, expect to handle such a specimen. It was a collector's palaver, and Mr. Chittenden recognized it as such. Stuff of that kind, Mr. Dillett. It's a museum piece, that is. Well, I suppose there are museums that'll take anything. I've seen one not as good as that years back, said Mr. Chittenden thoughtfully. That's not likely to come into the market, and I'm told they have some fine ones of the period over the water. No, I'm only telling you the truth, Mr. Dillett, when I say that if you was to place an unlimited order with me for the very best that could be got, and you know I've got the facilities for getting to know of such things and a reputation to maintain, well, all I can say is that I should lead you straight up to that one and say, I can't do no better for you than that, sir. Here, here, said Mr. Dillett, applauding ironically with the end of his stick on the floor of the shop. How much are you sticking the innocent American buyer for it, eh? Also, I want a cane that I can... Shake at people? Yeah. Oh, I shan't be over hard on the buyer, American or otherwise. You see, it stands this way, Mr. Dillett. If I knew just a bit more about the pedigree, or a bit less, Mr. Dillett put in. Ha! You will have your joke, sir. No, but as I was saying, if I knew just a little more than what I do about the piece... Though anyone can see for themselves, it's a genuine thing, every last corner of it, and there's not been one of my men allowed to as much touch it since it came into the shop. There'd be another figure in the price I'm asking. And that's what, five and twenty? Multiply that by three, and you've got it, sir. Seventy-five's my price. And fifty's mine, said Mr. Dillett. The point of agreement was, of course, somewhere between the two. It does not matter exactly where. I think sixty guineas. But half an hour later, the object was being packed, and within an hour, Mr. Dillett Dillett had called for it in his car and driven away. 
Mr. Chittenden, holding the check in his hand, saw him off from the door with smiles and returned, still smiling, into the parlor where his wife was making tea. He stopped at the door. It's gone, he said. Thank God for that, said Mrs. Chittenden, putting down the teapot. Mr. Dillett, was it? Yes, it was. Why, well, sooner it was him than another. Well, I don't know. He ain't a bad feller, my dear. Maybe not, but in my opinion, he'd be none the worse for a bit of a shake-up. Well, if that's your opinion, it's my opinion he's put himself into the way of getting one. Anyway, we shan't have no more of it, and that's something to be thankful for. Okay, so clearly something has gone on. Because they're know. happy to get rid of whatever, I'm it assuming, was. the dollhouse. Yeah. yeah. Uh, and so Mr. and Mrs. Chittenden sat down to tea. And what of Mr. Dillett and his new acquisition? What it was, the title of the story will have told you. What it was like, I shall have to indicate as well as I can. There was only just room enough for it in the car, and Mr. Dillett had to sit with the driver, and he also had to go slow, for though the rooms of the doll's house had all been stuffed carefully with soft cotton wool, jolting was to be avoided in the view of the immense number of small objects which thronged them, and the ten-mile drive was an anxious time for him, in spite of all the precautions he insisted upon. At least his front door was reached, and Collins, the butler, came out. Look here, Collins, you must help me with the thing. It's a delicate job. We must get it upright, you see. It's full of little things that mustn't be displaced more than we can help. Let's see, where shall we have it? He paused for consideration. Really, I think I shall have to put it in my own room. To begin with, at any rate. On the big table, that's it. It was conveyed with much talking to Mr. Dillett's spacious room on the first floor, looking out on the drive. The sheeting was unwound from it, and the front thrown open, and in the next hour or two, Mr. Dillett was fully occupied in extracting the padding and setting the order of the contents in the rooms. So my only question right now is, like, is this for a child or, like... I hope not. <laughs> is he just collecting dollhouses, which is a little yeah, odd in itself? Mm-hmm. <laughs> when this thoroughly congenial task was finished, I must say that it would have been difficult to find a more perfect and attractive specimen of a doll's house in Strawberry Hill, gothic than that which now stood on Mr. Dillett's large keyhole table, lighted up by the evening sun, which became slanting through the three tall sash windows. It was quite six feet long, including the chapel or oratory, which flanked the front on the left as you faced it, and the stable on the right. So this was like a damn doll estate from the sounds of it. No, thank you. The main block of the house was, as I have said, in the Gothic manner. That is to say, the windows had pointed arches and were surmounted by what are called ogival hoods with crockets and finials, such as what we see on the canopies of the tombs built into church walls. At the angles were absurd turrets covered with arched panels. The chapel had pinnacles and buttresses, and a bell in the turret and colored glass in the windows. When the front of the house was open, you saw four large rooms, a bedroom, dining room, drawing room, and kitchen, each with its appropriate furniture in a very complete state. The stable on the right was in two stories, with its proper complement of horses, coaches, and grooms, and with its clock and gothic cupola for the clock bell. Sorry, I need a drink. Yeah. <laughs> Wet your whistle. Mm-hmm. That's a lot of reading. What do you think so far? Um, I don't want to go wherever that is. See, this is already giving me some, like, Bly Manor yep. vibes, and mm-hmm. I'm, I'm just not a big fan mm-hmm. so far. Pages, of course, might be written on the outfit of the mansion. How many frying pans, how many gilt chairs, what pictures, carpets, chandeliers, four posters, table linen, glass, crockery, and plate it possessed. But all this must be left to the imagination. I will only say that the base or plinth on which the house stood, for it was fitted with some of depth which allowed for a flight of stairs to the front door and terrace, 
contained a shallow drawer or drawers in which there were neatly stored sets of embroidered curtains, changes of raiment for the inmates, and in short, all materials for an infinite series of variations and refittings. Quintessence of Horace Walpole, that's what it is. He must have had something to do with the making of it. Such was Mr. Dillett's murmured reflection as he knelt before it in ecstasy. Simply wonderful. This is my day and no mistake. 500 pounds coming in this morning for that cabinet, which I never cared about. And now this tumbling into my hands for a tenth at the very most of what it would fetch in town. Well, well, it it almost makes one afraid of something will happen to counter it. Let's have a look at the population anyhow. Accordingly, he set them before him in a row. Again, here in an opportunity, which some would snatch at, of making an inventory of costume. I am incapable of it. There was a gentleman and lady in blue satin in Brassad, respectively. There were two children, a boy and a girl. There was a cook, a nurse, a footman, and there were stable servants, two physicians, a coachman, and two grooms. Anyone else? Yes, possibly. The curtains of the four-poster in the bedroom were closely drawn around all four sides of it, and he put his finger in between them and felt the bed. He drew the finger back hastily, for it seemed as if something had not stirred, perhaps, but yielded in an odd, live way as he pressed it. Then he put back the curtains, which ran on rods in the proper manner, and extracted the bed, a white-haired old gentleman in a long linen nightdress, and laid him down by the rest. The tale was complete. Dinner time was now near, so Mr. Dillett spent but five minutes putting the lady and children into the drawing room the gentleman into the dining room, the servants into the kitchen and stables, and the old man back into bed. He retired into his dressing room next door, and we hear and see no more of him until something like 11 o'clock that night. So it's weird because in reading this, I keep thinking these are like actual people he's describing because like the descriptions of the dollhouse are so real, vivid. Because I bet they are real. Yeah, this is giving some like Bly Manor vibes mm-hmm. for certain. His whim was to sleep surrounded by some of the gems of the collection. The big room in which we have seen him contained his bed, bath, wardrobe, and all the appliances of dressing were in a commodious room adjoining. But his four-poster, which itself was a valued treasure, stood in the large room where he sometimes wrote, and often sat and even received visitors. Tonight, he repaired it in a highly complacent frame of mind. There was no striking clock within earshot, none on the staircase, none in the stable, none in the distant church tower. Yet it is indubitable that Mr. Dillett was startled out of a very pleasant slumber by a bell tolling one. He was so much startled that he did not merely lie breathless with wide open eyes, but he actually sat up in bed. He never asked himself till morning hours how it was that, though there was no light at all in the room. The doll's house on the keyhole table stood out with complete clearness, but it was so. The effect was that of a bright harvest moon shining full on the front of a white stone mansion. A quarter of a mile away it might be, and yet every detail was photographically sharp. There were trees about it, too, trees rising behind the chapel and the house. He seemed to be conscious of the scent of a cool September night. He thought he could hear an occasional thump and stamp and clink from the stables, as of horses stirring. And with another shock, he realized that above the house, he was looking not at the wall of the room, its pictures, but into the profound blue of a night sky. There were lights, more than one, in the windows, and he quickly saw that this was no four-roomed house with a movable front, but one of many rooms and staircases, a real house, but if as seen through the wrong end of a telescope. You mean to show me something, he muttered to himself, as he gazed earnestly on the lighted windows. They would in real life have been shuttered or curtained, no doubt, 
But as it was, there was nothing to intercept his view of what was being transacted inside the rooms. Two rooms were lighted, one on the ground floor to the right of the door, one upstairs on the left, the first brightly enough, the other dimly. The lower room was in the dining room. A table was laid, but the meal was over, and only wine and glasses were left on the table. The man of the blue satin and the woman of the brocade were alone in the room, and now they were talking very earnestly, seated close together at the table, their elbows on it, every now and again stopping to listen, as it seems. Once he rose, came to the window, and opened it, and put his head out and hand to his ear. There was a lighted, a lighted taper and a silver candlestick on a sideboard. When the man left the window, he seemed to leave the room also, and the lady, taper in hand, remained, remained standing and listening. The expression on her face was that of one striving her utmost to keep down a fear that threatened to master her in succeeding. It was a hateful face, too, broad, flat, and sly. Now the man came back, and she took some small thing from him and hurried from the room. He, too, disappeared, but only for a moment or two. The front door opened slowly, and he stepped out and stood on top of the perron, looking this way and that, then turned towards the upper window that was lighted and shook his fist. So if I'm following this, this is like what's happening in the in doll the dollhouse. It's like almost become. It's some like cross between Bly Manor and fucking Toy Story. Yes, yeah, <laughs> that's kind of what I was thinking too. It was time to look at that upper window, though. Through it was seen a four-post bed, a nurse or other servant, and an armchair, evidently sound asleep, and in the old in the bed, an old man lying awake, and one would say anxious, from the way in which he shifted about and moved his fingers beating tunes on the coverlet. Beyond the door, beyond the bed, a door had opened. Light was seen on the ceiling, and the lady came in. She sat down her candle on the bed, came to the fireside, and roused it, roused the nurse. In her hand, she had an old-fashioned wine bottle and readily uncorked. The nurse took it, poured some of the contents into a little silver saucepan, added some spice and sugar from the casters on the table, and set it warm on the fire. Meanwhile, the old man in the bed beckoned feebly to the lady who came to him, smiling, took his wrist as if to feel his pulse, and bit her lip as in consternation. He looked down at her anxiously, then pointed to the window and spoke. She noted and did as the man had done, opened the casement and listened, perhaps rather ostentatiously, then drew in her head and shook it, looking at the old man who seemed to sigh. By this time, the posset on the fire was steaming, and the nurse poured it into a small silver bowl and brought it to the bedside. The old man seemed uh, disinclined for it and was waving it away, but the lady and nurse together bent over him and evidently pressed it upon him. He must have yielded, for they supported him in a sitting position and put it to his lips. He drank most of it in several draughts, and they laid him down. The lady left the room, smiling goodnight to him, and took the bowl, the bottle, and the silver saucepan with her. The nurse returned to the chair, and there was an interval of complete quiet. Suddenly, the old man started up from the bed, and he must have uttered some cry, for the nurse started out of her chair and made it one step to the bedside. He was a sad and terrible sight, flushed in the face almost to blackness, his eyes glaring whitely, both hands clutching his heart and foam at his lips. For a moment, the nurse left him, ran to the door, flung it open, and one supposes screamed aloud for help, then darted back to the bed and seemed to feverishly try to soothe him, to lay him down. But as the lady, her husband, and several servants rushed into the room with horrified faces, the old man collapsed under the nurse's hands and lay back, and the features, contorted with agony and rage, relaxed slowly into calm. Mm -hmm. I think they poisoned him, because they just, like, made him drink something, and then he's, like, having a moment. 
A few minutes later, light showed out to the left of the house, and a coach with flambeau drove to the door. A white-wigged man in black got nimbly out and ran up the steps, carrying a small leather trunk-shaped box. He was met in the doorway by the man and his wife, and she with her handkerchief clutched between her hands, he with a tragic face but retaining self-control. They led the newcomer into the dining room, where he set a box of papers on the table, and turning to them, listened with a face of consternation. He nodded his head again and again, threw out his hand slightly, declined, as it seemed, offers of refreshment and lodging for the night, and within a few minutes came slowly down the steps, entering the coach and driving off the way he had come. As the man in blue watched him from atop the stairs, a smile not pleasant to see stole slowly over his fat white face. Darkness fell over the whole scene as the lights of the coach disappeared. But Mr. Dillett remained sitting up in the bed. He had rightly guessed there would be a sequel. The house front glimmered out again before long, but now there was a difference. The lights were in the other windows, one at the top of the house, the other illuminating the range of colored windows in the chapel. How he saw through these is not quite obvious, but he did. The interior was as carefully furnished as the rest of the establishment, with its minute red cushions on the desk, its gothic stall canopies, and its western gallery and pinnacled organ with gold pipes. On the center of the black and white pavement was a beer. Four tall candles burned at the corners. On the beer was a coffin covered with a pall of black velvet. As he looked at the folds of the pall stirred, it seemed to rise on one end. It slid downwards. It fell away, exposing the black coffin with its silver handles and nameplate. One of the tall candlesticks swayed and toppled over. Asked no more but turned, as Mr. Dillett hastily did, and looked in the lighted windows at the top of the house, where a boy and girl lay in two truckle beds and a four-poster for the nurse rose above them. The nurse was not visible for the moment, but the father and mother were there, dressed now in mourning, but with very little sign of mourning in their demeanor. Instead, they were laughing and talking, a good deal of animation, sometimes to each other, sometimes throwing a remark to one or the other child, and again laughing at the answers. When the father was seen to go on tiptoe out of the room, taking with him as he went a white garment that hung on a peg near the door, he shut the door after him. A minute or two later, it was slowly opened again, and a muffled head poked around it. A bent form of a sinister shape stepped across the truckle beds and suddenly stopped, threw up its arms and revealed, of course, the father, laughing. The children were in agonies of terror, the boy with the bedclothes over his head, and the girl throwing herself out of bed into her mother's arms. Attempted Attempts at consol- consolation followed. The parents took the children into their laps, patted them, picked up the white gown, and showed that there was no harm, and so forth, and at last, putting the children back to bed, left the room with encouraging waves of the hand. As they left, the nurse came in, and soon the light died down. Still Mr. Dillett watched, immovable. A new sort of light, not a lamp or candle, a pale, ugly light, began to draw on around the door case at the back of the room. The door was opening again. The seer does not like to dwell upon what he saw entering the room. He says it might be described as a frog, the size of a man. It had scanty white about its head. It was busy about the truckle beds, but not for long. The sounds of cries faint as if coming from a vast distance, but in, even so, infinitely appalling, reached the ear. There were signs of hideous commotion all over the house. Lights moved along and up. Doors opened and shut, and running figures passed the windows. The clock in the stable turret told one, and the darkness fell again. It was only dispelled once more to show the house front. At the bottom of the steps, dark figures were drawn up in two lines, holding flaming torches. More dark figures came down the steps, bearing first one, then another small coffin. And the lines of torchbearers with the coffins between them moved silently onward to the left. 
The hours of night passed on, never so slowly, Mr. Dillett thought. Gradually, as he sank down from sitting to lying in his bed, he did not close an eye, and early the next morning he sent for the doctor. The doctor found him in a disquieting state of nerves and recommended sea air. That sounds very German. It does sound <laughs> sure. <laughs> to a quiet place on the East Coast, he had accordingly repaired by easy stages in his car. One of the first people he met on the seafront was Mr. Chittenden, who it appeared had likewise been advised to take his wife away for a bit of change. Mr. Chittenden looked somewhat askance upon him when they met, and not without cause. Well, I don't wonder at you being a bit upset, Mr. Dillett. What? Yes, well, I might say horribly upset, to be sure, seeing what me and my poor wife went through ourselves. But I put it to you, Mr. Dillett, one of these two things. Was I going to scrap a lovely piece like that on the one, and was I going to tell customers I'm selling you a regular picture palace drama in real life of the olden time bill to perform regularly at 1 o'clock a.m.? What would you have said to yourself? And the next thing you know, two justices of the peace in the back parlor and poor Mr. and Mrs. Chittenden off in a spring cart to the county asylum, and everyone in the street saying, I thought it would come to that. Look at the way the man drank. And me next door, or next door but one, to a total abstainer, as you know. Well, there's my position. What? Me have it back in the shop? Well, what do you think? No, but I'll tell you what I will do. You shall have your money back, bar the 10 pound I paid for it, and you make what you can. So basically, he's, like, confronting him, and he's yeah. like, what the fuck did you sell me? <laughs> Later in the day, in what offensively is called the smoke room of the hotel, a murmured conversation between the two went on for some time. How much do you really know about that thing and where it came from? Honest, Mr. Dillett, I don't know the house. Of course, it came out of the lumber room of a county house, as anyone could guess. But I'll go so far as to say this, that I believe it's not a 100 miles from this place. Which direction and how far, I've no notion. I'm only judging by guesswork. The man as I actually paid the check to ain't one of my regular men, and I've lost sight of him. But I have the idea that this part of the country was his beat, and that's every word I can tell you. But now, Mr. Dillett, there's one thing that rather fix physics me. That old chap, I suppose you saw him drive up the door. I thought so now, would be a, would be a medical man, do you take it? My wife would have had it so but I stuck to it that that was a lawyer because he had papers with him, and the one he took out was folded up. I agree, said Mr. Dillett. Thinking it over, I came to the conclusion that was the old man's will, ready to be signed. Just what I thought, Mr. Chittenden said, and I took it, that it will would have cut out the young people, eh? Well, well, it's been a lesson to me, I know that. I shan't buy no more dollhouses, nor waste no more money on the pictures. And as to this business of poisoning Grandpa... Well, if I know myself, I never had much of a turn for that. Live and let live. That's been my motto throughout life, and I ain't found it a bad one. Filled with elevated sentiments, Mr. Chittenden retired to his lodgings. Mr. Dillett next day repaired to the local institute, where he hoped to find some clue to the riddle that absorbed him. He gazed in despair at a long file of the Canterbury and York Society's publication of the parish, parish registers of the district. No print resembling the house of his nightmares was among these on the staircase and in the passages. Disconsolate, he found himself at last in a derelict room, staring at a dusty model of a church in a dusty glass case. Model of St. Stephen's Church, Coxham, presented by J. Merriweather, Esquire of Illbridge House, 1877. The work of his ancestor, James Merriweather, died 1786. There was something in the fashion of it that reminded him dimly of his horror. He retraced his steps to a wall map, as he had noticed, and made out the Illbridge house was in Coxham Parish. Coxham was, as it happened, one of the parishes where he had retained the name when he glanced over the file of the printed registers, 
And it was not long before that he found in them the record of the burial of Roger Milford, aged 76, on the 11th of September, 1757, and of Roger and Elizabeth Merriweather, aged 9 and 7, on the 19th of the same month. It seemed worth the while to follow up on this clue, frail as it was, and in the afternoon he drove out to Coxham. The east end of the north aisle of the church is in Milford Chapel, and on the north wall are tablets to the same persons. Roger, the elder, it seems, was distinguished by all the qualities which adorn the father, the magistrate, and the man. The memorial was erected by his attached daughter, Elizabeth, who did not survive the loss of a parent ever solicitous for her welfare and two amiable children. The last sentence was plainly in addition to the original inscription. A yet later slab told of James Merriweather, husband of Elizabeth, who in the dawn of life practiced not without success those arts which he had continued to exercise might in the opinion of the most competent judges have earned him the name of British Vitruvius, but who overwhelmed by the visitation which deprived him of an affectionate partner and a blooming offspring, passed his prime in age in a secluded yet elegant retirement. His grateful nephew and heir indulges a pious sorrow, sorrow by this too brief recital of his excellences. So he's finding out these were real people. Yeah, that's weird. The children were more simply commemorated. Both died on the night, the 12th of September. Mr. Dillett felt sure that in Illbridge House he had found the scene of the drama. In some old ske- sketchbook, possibly in some old print, he may yet find convincing evidence that he is right. But the Ilbridge House of today is not what he sought it. It is an Elizabethan erection of the 40s, in red brick with stone, coins, and dressings. A quarter of a mile from it, in a low part of the park, backed by an ancient, stag-horned, ivy-strangled trees and thick undergrowth, are marks of a terraced platform overgrown with rough grass. A few stone balusters lie there, and there a heap or two, covered with nettles and ivy, of wrought stones with badly carved crockets. This, someone told Mr. Dillett, was the site of an older house. As he drove out of the village, the hall clock struck four. Mr. Dillett started up and clapped his hands to his ears. It was not the first time he had heard that bell. Awaiting an offer from the other side of the Atlantic, the doll's house still reposes, carefully sheeted in a loft over Mr. Dillett's stables, whither Collins conveyed it on the day when Mr. Dillett started for the seacoast. Mm. So what do you think? Is it like replaying like a scene like yeah. over every night? I think it's showing like the older man's death and then it's showing the children being killed. But by what I couldn't quite yeah. figure out what killed them. But basically I think it's like a residual like haunting and this yeah. like perfect yeah, yeah. replica of the house. I don't like that. Yeah. And he basically was like, that can go right into the attic of the stable and we're not going to mess with that <laughs> no more. going to sit there. <laughs> yeah. That was a good, I mean, that was, kept me intrigued the entire time. It was intriguing. I will say, I think, it, like I said, the descriptions of the dollhouse were so vivid that mm-hmm. at times I thought, like, they were actually talking people. about people. Yeah. But it just goes to show, people have had haunted shit forever. 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 Yeah. Yeah. And that makes me feel a little bit better about my demonic American Girl doll. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> Ugh. You know what? I'm a much stronger person now than I was as a kid when I was terrified <laughs> of that thing. And my therapist told me one time that you should strive to be the person your childhood self needed. And I think I took that too literally because now I would fight the American Girl doll if I ever yeah. had to. Absolutely. And that is where GarageBand decided to cut us off. So you did not get to hear the back half of the uh, our closing uh, comments. But thank you for listening and join us next time. And remember, it's just a story, but don't look under the bed. Bye. Bye.